This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election, and it should be dropped immediately. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family. The criminal is the district attorney because he illegally leaked massive amounts of grand jury. Good evening and welcome to a MetroFocus special report. I'm Jack Ford. That was Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg in New York and former now indicted President Donald Trump delivering a campaign style primetime speech at Mar-a-Lago last night. That afternoon, Donald Trump became the first U.S. president in history to be charged with a crime. Mr. Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Prosecutors say he orchestrated a so-called catch and kill scheme to cover up alleged affairs and committed fraud to keep them quiet ahead of the 2016 presidential election. In last night's address, the former president vowed to fight the charges and cast himself as the victim of a political witch hunt. He also railed against DA Alvin Bragg, as well as the judge on the case and their families. Mr. Trump's speech came just hours after his unprecedented arraignment in Lower Manhattan, a normally routine process which unfolded in a circus-like atmosphere. Hundreds of people gathered outside the criminal courthouse where Mr. Trump made his appearance, some supporting the former president and some celebrating his indictment. Despite fears of violence, the protests were largely peaceful, a credit to the city's law enforcement and their preparation. Tonight, the city breathes again, but the fallout from yesterday's historic events is just beginning. So what then comes next? Joining me now to discuss all their issues are Judge Doris Ling Cohan is a retired New York State Supreme Court justice. She ruled on a previous defamation case involving Donald Trump and has had extensive courtroom experience. Duncan Levin, former federal prosecutor with the Department of Justice, also a former prosecutor of financial crimes at the Manhattan DA's office under the legendary Robert Morgenthau. And Ellis Hennigan is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and political analyst who has covered Donald Trump extensively. So welcome to all of you. It's a pleasure to have you with us tonight. We have a great deal to talk about. So let me get started. And I'll start with you first, Ellis. As a journalist, your job is to chronicle events. Uh, it's to provide context, to provide perspective. This was an extraordinary event that happened here yesterday. Give me your thoughts on what transpired. Oh, Jack, big characters make big stories, and these were some of the biggest. I mean, just just think about it. I mean, this story really does have ha have everything, right? It's got uh, interesting and complicated legal issues. It's got uh, a defendant who may be the most famous human being on earth. It has strong feelings, political feelings across the spectrum of our country, and we're making some history here. We've never had a ex-president uh, accused of a, of a crime in such a such a formal way 
And, uh, you know, it's only begun. Twists and turns to come, strong fights ahead, and everything is so personal. So, uh, yeah, this is pretty much the one that has everything. Let's talk about some of the issues here, because this this case has already generated significant legal questions, issues. It will continue to do so. And so, Judge, let me come to you about this first. We saw the, especially the defense yesterday, essentially decrying the indictment itself, claiming that there was very little in the the counts themselves. Now, the indictment, as you know, there was a statement of facts attached to it and then the 34 counts. And we saw the the defense, as I mentioned, kind of bemoaning the fact that there was nothing in there. We saw the former president himself saying there was nothing in there. And we saw the DA saying, here's what we put in there. So my question to you, Judge, as a as a legal matter, explain to us what an indictment is and what needs to be included and perhaps what doesn't need to be included, at least at the early stages of the case. Well, the indictment can be very bare bones, and this one is kind of a mixture of both, but is fairly bare bones. The statement of facts does flush it out, but it has to plead the elements of the crime. And this one definitely does. Uh, So 34 counts, a felony, a D felony, it certainly lays out the uh, falsification of business records, uh, which is the main charge. It elevates it by uh essentially saying that there was another crime an intent to uh commit uh or um or conceal criminal conduct and so that's all they needed the defense did what they're supposed to do right they went out and said there's nothing here there's nothing here well this one there's plenty there and it's unlikely to get dismissed on a motion all right so bottom line is you don't need to have everything you have as a prosecutor in the indictment at the early stage of the case. Absolutely. Correct. Correct. Duncan, let me come to you, because as I mentioned, you've had experience as a uh, as in a district attorney's office, uh, as a federal prosecutor, now as a as a trial attorney, a defense attorney. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, what we saw yesterday with the defense attorneys outside and making certain pitches, a Um, a statement then given by the district attorney himself. And we often hear references to the court of public opinion. So what did you see playing out yesterday with regard to the defense attorneys and the prosecutor? Well, I think a lot of the comments that they made um, are not necessarily wrong. And to to just add on to what the judge was saying, I, I don't disagree that the prosecution doesn't need to put much more into this indictment. But the problem is here that the falsification of business records themselves is a misdemeanor. Um, the statute of limitations ran out after two years. So that that as a misdemeanor is not a case that's viable. What makes it viable is if the falsification was done to conceal or commit another crime. That's what allows it to be brought as a felony with a five-year statute of limitations. The problem is, is that the indictment itself says absolutely nothing about what these additional um, charges are, what, what the other crimes evidences. For that, you have to look at two places. One is the statement of facts. Um, 
which is a document that has no legal weight, but that accompanied the indictment and DA Bragg's public statements, which is what you're referring to in this press conference. And in it, it seems to me that there are three crimes that they're talking about. Two of them are election law violations. One is New York state election law violations, a violation of the um, federal election campaign contribution caps and misrepresentations to tax authorities. But that is nowhere in the indictment. So we have to look at these public statements um, to be able to glean what the DA is even talking about. And to me, while it may be legally sufficient as a matter of law, I, I think it's really problematic that none of that is there. And so I don't disagree necessarily with what um, the defense is saying um, when they come out of court and talk to the media about there's nothing there. Um, I, I just I, I think that the DA is going to at some point need to um, answer which business records match up with which other crimes. You know, there are no other statutes mentioned anywhere in these documents. Right. And that's an interesting thing. Judge, let me come back to you, because we've we've heard throughout the course of of the reporting on this case and the comments being made as this case was working its way through, we've seen questions raised about just what Duncan mentioned here. All right, how do you get this to a felony? And Judge, you mentioned this, Duncan mentioned it also. Well, you have to have not only the falsification of business records, but it has to be designed, and this is the allegation that the prosecutor made, to, to cover up um, or to allow to continue some other offense. And as we've said, we've seen basically three that the prosecutor said. One is a violation of state election laws. One is a violation of federal election law. And then this violation of, of tax laws. So, Judge, my question to you is this. Given all of the speculation that there might not be enough here if it's just a violation of the federal law because the argument was the who gives the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, the right to prosecute based on the viola violation of a federal law. How about, Judge, the inclusion of the tax law violation? Do you think that that will give the district attorney enough to hang their hat on? They can still argue about the others, but at least this gives them an easier path, perhaps, than having to rely on the violation of a federal law? Absolutely. But there also is the violation of a New York state election law, which is 17-152. Mm -hmm. So in theory, they could actually just focus on that. Uh, I think that they are focusing, they're kind of spreading their ammunition far and wide to make sure that something will stick. He is, uh, he, in his, uh, in the indictment, it is bare bones. It does not name a statute, but they didn't have to name a particular statute that was violated. They didn't have to name, lay out all their cards. Uh, there is a discovery process and New York State has expanded discovery uh, for defendants. So there will be more uh, set forth uh, later on, I'm sure. So that, just so we understand, we're talking about discovery process, mm -hmm. but we no longer have trial by surprise in our courts. Correct. Correct? So that, yes. that essentially the defense is going to learn at some point in time everything that the prosecution has. Is that accurate? Yes. OK, pretty much. Pretty much. Ellis, back to you for a second. You know, we're talking about, you know, we, we've got a, a, three of us here, judges, former prosecutors, former defense attorneys, and we're talking about the the details of an indictment. Do you think the public either gets that or is that terribly concerned about this whole discussion of well, what's the underlying offense here? Well, no. I, I mean, the eyes are glazing over. In fact, look, it's taken us about seven minutes to describe it. So that's the, you know, from the public point of view, 
it's no those those complexities are interesting for the obsessive and for and for people like us. But uh, look, we're a very tribal nation right now, and, and in all of the reaction over the past hours, uh, I've seen folks uh, running right back to the corners. Right, uh, the, the people who incline to like the ex president are uh, talking about the horrible abuses of the system. The people who hate him are saying, "Well, thank God they finally got him on something. This may not be the biggest thing in the world, but." But at least they, they they're getting him on something. So 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 I think you really do need to separate those things. There are interesting, complicated legal issues here that are certainly worth chewing over. But uh, boy, the political impact of this thing probably has very little to do with that part. Yeah, absolutely. So I was seeing all the headlines in various papers all over the country, and it says. 34 felonies. That was one of the headlines. So people are going to digest it as an indictment of 34 felonies. The, the little issues that we are talking about are very interesting to lawyers and uh, people who follow the law. But at the bottom line is, is that he has to defend against 34 felonies. Let's talk about some of the other things that came out yesterday. And Duncan, I'll come to you for this, if I would. We had seen leading into this, uh, Mr. Trump attacking not just the process, but also personally attacking. We've seen personally attacks against the district attorney, personal attacks. And then we saw yesterday in his in his speech at Mar-a-Lago, and we had seen it in, in some of his social media posts, him essentially attacking the character of, of the trial judge, Judge Mershon, and the judge's family, his wife and his daughter, claiming that they are, his words, Trump haters. So the question to you, Duncan, is if you're representing the president, are these the kinds of comments that you think will be in any way, shape or form helpful to your defense? Not only are they help unhelpful, they're um, possibly criminal on their own and certainly deeply concerning and wrong in every way. As an alum of the office, I find it um just deeply troubling to hear that they receive packages of white powder or when I see the vitriolic images of Donald Trump holding up a baseball bat um, on, on a posting that he posted on, on Truth Social, his, his uh, social media platform, holding up a baseball bat next to D.A. Bragg's head. These are the kinds of things that I, I think could be seen as, as uh criminal under the New York state menacing statute. So it, it rises to such a level of uh, just being downright inappropriate and dangerous. Um, it's not helpful in any way to his defense. Um, and uh, Judge Mershon is uh, not going to have it. I mean, he's already, I think, bending over backwards to right. try to um, look, given the, the the enormous public interest to not rein in uh, Mr. Trump yeah. too much. But I, I think at the same time, if this continues, um, he will impose a gag order. Let me, let, yeah, let me let me ask you, yeah. you get me nicely. You get me nicely to where I want to be. And I'm going to go to judge first and then Ellis on this. So judge to you, do you first two questions for you. Mm -hmm. The first question is, does Judge Mershon have the power or the ability to restrict the comments that would be made by a defendant in his courtroom. Second question, perhaps more important, should he do something like that? He does have the power. Uh, the thing is, is that you have essentially, by all accounts, somebody who 
has difficulty controlling his behavior, to put it kindly. And so um, what happens if he violates the gag order that a judge imposes on him? So he essentially goes to jail for 30 days. So that is something I don't think you want to do at the beginning of the trial and set that tone. I think he, uh, Judge Mashan was very um, wise in that he warned uh, essentially both sides that this is something that he wants to control. He did the unusual, you know, normally arraignments are very quick. This one lasted about an hour and he went through something called a Parker warning, which is unusual. Uh, usually it's done in cases where there's some mental illness component to warn the defendant that this trial will go on whether you are with us or without us, meaning that if you don't show up, we're going to go forward. In this case, he said to uh, Donald Trump that if you essentially do conduct that and tries to impede my trial, you may be removed and the trial will continue without your presence. That's extraordinary for him to have done that. And I think that's the first warning uh, of strong warning uh, to to, uh, President Trump that uh, this is not going to tolerate. So you say you're not going to tolerate. And we know, and, and we, we, mm-hmm. both you and Duncan have talked about, that the judge has certain powers and abilities here to control mm-hmm. his or her courtroom. The judge is being patient, and, and I think everybody said being wise in the beginning. But mm-hmm. the judge issued a warning, and literally hours later, the former president escalated. I think it's a fair characterization. Escalated his, his personal attacks. Mm-hmm. So once again, where is where is the line that any trial judge has to be concerned with the integrity of the process and has to be concerned with the perception of the integrity of the process does it look fair does it sound fair is it actually fair so what does a a judge a trial judge judge mishan do and i'm asking you to sort of project down the road here if the former president continues and even I, I know even his supporters will say, yes, this is who he is. They'll say it's Trump being Trump. But we can anticipate, given what he's done to opponents in the political realm, that they may well continue these personal attacks. Is there a point in time when the judge, not just for his personal concern, but for the concern of the integrity of the trial, has to say, I'm not going to allow this anymore? Absolutely. Absolutely. The integrity of the trial also is the rule of law. If ordinary defendants can do this all the time, there's a problem with our justice system. And so the judge has to balance that as well. Um, The question of whether his remarks cross the line, arguably yes, arguably no. Uh, But I think that uh, if he goes a, a step further, I think the judge really has no choice. Mm. Ellis, Ellis, and jump in. I'm Ellis, jump in. I don't know. Ellis, jump in here from, from, from the think, journalist perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think you guys are living in the clouds here. The, the, the judge is going to threaten and warn okay. and wag his finger and do nothing. And, it, and there are a couple of reasons why. First of all, Duncan is absolutely right. This stuff is all unwise. I mean, Donald Trump should keep his mouth shut under these circumstances and he won't. I mean, we've been down this road a, a thousand times before. It's always unwise and he always does it. 
So what does the judge do, right? What he needs to be careful about is threatening something that he's not prepared to deliver. It is, it is, I would say, sitting here right now, almost unthinkable that this judge is going to have uh, some kind of a, a pre-conviction detention for Donald Trump. He will, he will find other ways to deal with the outbursts. He will be very careful in picking a jury and making sure through the idea process that the jurors who can make a, a fair uh, the judgment about this case, he will urge the parties. He might even he might even lean on the lawyers, the officers of the court. But I will predict right now that no matter what Donald Trump says prior to this uh, thing going to trial, nothing will happen. Yeah. Hey, Duncan, uh, Ellis brings up an interesting point, and that's the jury selection process here. So give us a sense. I, I've heard people say, and, and clearly they, they're probably just not very well versed in, in trials. I've heard people reporting on this saying, well, they, they'll never be able to pick a jury because they'll never be able to find people who don't know anything about this case. Is that the standard that you no, don't know anything about the case? And if it's not, what is the standard? No, the standard at the end of the day is people who can be fair and, and listen to the evidence and don't have preconceived um, notions about it. And that's frankly what we're really talking about, aside from all the vitriolic language and the 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 um, potential violence towards prosecutors or the judge's family, what we're really talking about is that all of the residents of Manhattan right now are potential jurors. And some of the information here may not get in front of those jurors at a trial. And so the judge wants to make sure that the jury pool isn't tainted. But I do want to break out this distinction between the fact that Donald Trump lost resoundingly lost the vote in Manhattan. But that doesn't mean that just because somebody doesn't want him to be president of the United States, that they can't listen to the evidence in this case fairly and with an open mind. That's what the uh, the judge is going to be looking for in jury selection. That's what the parties are going to be looking for in jury selection. Um, and ultimately, uh, I, I don't think the fact that everyone knows about the case, like everyone knew about, knew about the OJ case. Every, there are lots of high profile cases where you can still pick a jury. Um, people know about the case, but the question is, can you be fair? And and as you know from being in a courtroom and judges, you know, you know, you can have a juror say, "Yeah, I followed this thing extensively. I've read everything. I've seen everything." But the bottom line question, judge, yes, is you ask a potential juror, understanding that, can you still con confirm to us that you will hold off on making a decision until you've heard both sides, and then you'll decide it fairly on that? Judge, is that basically what you say to them? Yeah, and and look, I mean, yes, correct. Right. Right. So you have an open mind. Yeah, well, can you do that? Let me let me yes. we got a few, few minutes left and and there's some other things I want to touch base on and judge I'll come to you for this. Uh, we've we've heard the defense saying that they have motions that they're going to file. They've been given 4 months to file their motions that the prosecution will have time to respond. Uh, talk about a judge's power here. When a judge is presented with motions, does the judge if the, the he or she agrees with the defense saying there's nothing here? Does the judge have the ability to say, you're right, I'm going to throw this thing out? And does that often happen? Yes, the judge does. The judge does have the ability to do that. Uh, there's a long process. The Obviously, the prosecutor has an opportunity to oppose the motion, and the judge will might hear all the argument on it. Um, and so, yes, the judge does have the power to do that. It does not happen that often has to be a missing element um, and to that 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 the prosecutor has not uh, has not put in the indictment um, usually for that to even happen. 
it's rare that yeah. it happens. Duncan, would you uh, anticipate, and again, I got about three minutes here. I want to get something you want to finish up with, Ellis, but would you anticipate from what you've seen here that that despite the challenges, the legal challenges that the defense attorneys are going to make to the indictment itself and the nature of the charges, would you anticipate that this is going to move forward, that even though it might be fine-tuned by a judge, that the judge is not going to throw this thing whole, whole thing out and we're probably going to see a trial? I'm concerned with the fact that we don't know what these other crimes are. And I'm very curious to know what the jury with well, the grand jurors were charged in terms of the law that that is something the judge is going to look at ex parte on on his own. Um, and that needs to be legally sufficient. That's one concern. And the other is that I think this is going to take a detour to federal court on these federal election law claims. Um, and so I think we have a long winding road ahead of us. Uh, it's going to go forward, but um, it may get chopped to little pieces on its way. Yeah, you know, I, I say this, and I, I don't mean this facetiously in any way, shape, or form. But you look at all this, and it it almost reads like it's a law school final exam with all the different <laughs> twists and turns <laughs> and curious and unique legal issues here. Alice, I'm going to give you the last word here. I got about a minute and a half. We've heard people say that of all the former president's potential legal problems, this might be the least consequential. How do you think then this is all going to stack up and play out? if indeed there are more serious offenses coming at him down the road. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Jack, because you're absolutely right. We are in a unique moment here where this is the only indictment that Donald Trump is facing. There are you know, at least three others out there that seem to be running down the tracks rather swiftly uh, toward a similar conclusion on, on charges in all three cases that are uh, indeed more serious and, and frankly easier for regular folks to understand. So so I think any analysis we do about the long-term uh, journey of uh, this case in Manhattan, you gotta see it in the context of a potential of, uh, prosecution involving January 6th, so one involving the, the documents uh, down in Mar-a-Lago and one involving efforts to try and uh, uh, change the results of the Georgia vote. So, uh, yeah, this is ground zero right now, but it may not stay that way forever. Well, certainly more to come, as we've all talked about here. Uh, complicated issues. Our thanks, Ellis Hennigan. Always good to see you. Good friend good of the show, you. Duncan Levin. Pleasure to have you here with us. And Judge Doris Ling Cohan, also a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll talk with you all again as we continue our coverage down the road. Thanks so much for joining us. Y'all be well. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.